Hello and welcome to episode 5 Three Kings and a Mistake It is 1210 CE and the first sultan of Delhi Qutbuddin Aybak is dead For the four preceding years he had been dashing from campaign to campaign and it had time for little else He left his newly established sultanate only a few incomplete monuments and a succession crisis although the dominance of turkish arms had been established beyond doubt the two odd decades since the battle of tarai had seen little change in the social and administrative structures of north india the task of entrenching turkish rule was left to his successors the question of succession brought to the fore two competing traditions among the ruling elite of the sultanate in the turkish tradition that most of the important nobles claim to be heirs of the practice of primogeniture that is the practice of the son inheriting the throne from his father was not followed the most capable among a group of men irrespective of descent would be made king in contrast the persian tradition which had been adopted by the islamicized turks held that the legitimacy of a king rested on his being of royal birth suffice it to say that the nobility was divided on who the throne should go to one group supported arham shah who was it was claimed the son of aybak most of aybak's top officers however backed his former slave and son-in-law shamsuddin iltutmish when aybak died in lahore iltutmish was stationed in badam and he was invited to delhi to take the throne by aybak's commanders arham shah's supporters chose to remain with him in lahore we know very little about arham shah or what happened next since the only mentions of him are in the work of iltutmish's court historians who wrote him off as just another pretender all we know is that in 1211 ce he was defeated in the battle of baghejud and was killed during or soon after the battle iltutmish returned to delhi and was duly crowned sultan at the time of his ascension to the throne delhi was only one among many gorid feudatories jostling for power As soon as they heard of Aybak's death, several of his governors threw off Delhi suzerainty, and his rival Kubacha took the opportunity to occupy the Punjab. In Bengal, the Khilji ruler Alauddin Shah, no, not the Padmavat Alauddin, a different one, declared himself Sultan. The Hindu chieftains, always on the lookout for an opportunity to assert their independence, now refused to send tribute so from the moment he came to par iltutmish had his hands full ever the pragmatist he realized that he needed allies and he turned to his biggest rival moizuddin's former slave and the sultan of ghazni tajuddin yaldoz aware that yaldoz regarded himself ruler of all gorid territories and his preoccupation with the quaresmians 
He reasoned that by accepting his overlordship, he could, on one hand, check Kubacha's advance by threatening him with attack from two fronts, and on the other, could do just as he pleased further in the east, assured that Yaldus could spare little time or energy to keep an eye on his lieutenant in Delhi. Accordingly, in 1212 CE, he acknowledged Yaldus's claim to the Sultanate and declared himself the latter's vassal. With his west temporarily secured, he turned to the east and the next few years was spent in reasserting Delhi's control over the Ganga Valley and eastern Rajasthan. He also enforced a new system of administration based on the Persian model. Between campaigns, he undertook the completion of the Kuwait ul Islam Mosque and the adjacent tower that Aibak had started. This tower, that at that time loomed over Delhi as a visual symbol of Turkish supremacy, to this day remains a masterpiece in Minaret architecture. We, of course, know it as the Qutub Minar. In 1216 CE, however, the West was again rocked by conflicts. That year, the Khwarezmians finally forced Yaldus out of Ghazni and he fled east with his forces to make good on Iltutmish's submission to him four years earlier. Iltutmish, his hand now strengthened by successes in the east, had no intentions of giving up power. In a pitched battle that we would probably today call the Third Battle of Tarai, Yaldos was defeated and taken prisoner. He was later executed on Iltutmish's orders. Again, Punjab was caught in a three-way struggle, this time between Iltutmish, Khurbacha and the crown prince of the Khwarezm Shahs, Jalaluddin Mingbonno, who had been granted Ghazni as an appanage by his father. At this point, we must go back to Central Asia. The last time we were there, the Khwarezmians and the Karakitai had been jostling for control of the great Silk Road cities. By 1216, the Karakitai had been thrown into turmoil. A fugitive Mongol chieftain named Wuchlug had usurped the throne. The Kitans, who had grown to detest him for his tyranny, either defected or submitted without a fight to his enemies further east. The western half of their empire was swallowed up by their neighbours, the Khwarezmians. The Khwarezm Shah, Muhammad II, must have felt pretty good about himself at this point. The first hint of trouble came two years later, when emissaries came from a nomadic steppe warlord, bearing gifts and led by a Khwarezmian merchant. They told him that they sought a trade agreement. Muhammad Shah, widely regarded as the most powerful ruler in the world, had little regard for some barbarian chieftain. The envoys were snubbed and had to return empty-handed. Over the next year, he would receive many more such delegations and each time the meetings would become more and more hostile. Finally, in 1219 CE, at the frontier town of Otrar, a delegation was stopped, their goods seized and their leaders executed. Promptly, more emissaries arrived, and this time, they came with an ultimatum. Hand the governor of Otrar, 
the king's uncle, over to them to face justice, return the goods that had been seized unlawfully, and submit to their leader or prepare for war. Muhammad Shah flew into a rage at this and sent them back, sans their ears and noses. Now, Muhammad Shah had not been ignorant of events that were happening further east. For years, fugitives had been arriving at his court with stories of an obscure son of a minor Mongol chieftain, Temujin, who had risen from dire poverty to unite the warring tribes. He had even led them into northern China, where it was said they had inflicted such devastation as had never been seen before. And now, the Khwarezm Shah had insulted him. As any one of those refugees could have probably told him, no one insulted the stern leader of the Mongols, as he was named, Chinggis Khan, and get away with it. But Muhammad was the most powerful ruler of his time, and surely he had nothing to fear from Mongols. He would fortify himself within his cities and watch them dash themselves helplessly against his mighty walls. That would teach them not to threaten him ever again. Ignoring his son's advice to face the Mongol army in a pitched battle with every man they could muster, he left his governors instead to defend their own cities by themselves when the Mongols attacked later that year. This most powerful Muslim monarch of his day would spend the last days of his life in 1220 CE on an island in the Caspian Sea, delirious and handing out lands and titles that were no longer his to give. While across the Islamic world, chroniclers would write in almost apocalyptic terms of columns of smoke rising from the ruins of once prosperous cities, of towers of human skulls outside their walls, and their roads strewn with human corpses. Before the century was over, the Caliph and his entire family would be dead, the famed city of Baghdad reduced to rubble, and the Islamic Golden Age a thing of the past. Such was the storm that Chinggis Khan unleashed on the Khwarezmians. That same year, Chinggis Khan arrived at the banks of the Indus in pursuit of Jalaluddin, the Khwarezmian crown prince. Jalaluddin had returned to Ghazni and had mustered a force with which he had beaten back two armies sent after him. When Chinggis Khan himself arrived, his allies had finally deserted him and he had reached the Indus where he was caught and in the pitched battle defeated. As it became evident that the battle was lost, he is said to have ridden into the river on his horse and crossed to the other side, causing Chinggis Khan to comment in admiration, which father would not be proud of such a son? Once in India, Jalaluddin enjoyed a small reprieve. With trouble breaking out in another part of his empire, Chinggis Khan did not deem it wise to invade India. Leaving a small Mongol force to hunt down Jalaluddin, he returned to Mongolia. When Jalaluddin learned that a Mongol army was after him, he gathered the few supporters that remained with him and made for Delhi, sending a messenger ahead of him requesting asylum. 
Iltut Mesh had the messenger executed. He had good reason to deny Jalaluddin shelter. Even before the Mongol invasions, the Khwarezmians had been universally hated in the Islamic world and regarded as greedy, treacherous and arrogant rulers. Having seen what the Mongols could do, Iltutmish wasn't about to grant refuge to the scion of a dynasty that had only a few years earlier been declared an enemy of Islam by the Caliph no less. He instead sent emissaries to the Mongols with rich gifts and declarations of friendship, promising them that he would not grant asylum to Jalaluddin. Fuming, Jalaluddin and his men sacked and plundered their way across the Punjab, hoping to either draw Iltutmish out into a battle or become enough of a headache for him to give in to their demands. Knowing that they did not have nearly enough men to even threaten Delhi itself, Iltutmish didn't budge. Frustrated, Jalaluddin moved southwards towards Sindh. Kobacha, unfortunately, lacked the diplomacy of his rival in Delhi and made the mistake of riding out to fight him off. He was defeated and was forced to submit to Jalaluddin, who then marched south to plunder Gujarat, all the time pursued by the Mongols. For three years, from 1220 CE to 1223 CE, he had been in India and had achieved nothing other than pissing off every ruler and chieftain between the Indus and the Ganga. Finally realizing that there was nothing more that he could do in India, he gave the Mongols a slip and left for Iran. When they discovered this, the Mongols were livid and promptly took out their frustration on Kobacha and the helpless people of Sindh. When they finally left, Kobacha was dead and Punjab and Sindh were in shock. One person benefited from all this though. As the shocked people of Punjab and Sindh tried to come to terms with what had just happened to them, Iltutmish quietly moved in with his army and annexed the provinces. After years of bloodshed, first by the Khwarezmians and then by the Mongols, no one was left to challenge him. Finally, 31 years after Moizuddin had won at Tarai, there remained only one Sultan still standing in India. Join me in the next episode as we go over the remainder of Iltutmish's reign, his administrative and political reforms, and his final controversial act that would plunge the Sultanate into another succession crisis and give it its first and only female ruler. Thank you.